Hear now the very words of God as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the second chapter, verses 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us. Our dear Lord, as we sort of close out this particular part of Luke's gospel, and we look at the life and the characteristics of yet another Old Testament saint, I pray that you will um, help us make the transition that I believe that Luke is making through this, this wonderful woman and, and the power that she possesses because she is weak in the world and strong in you. I pray that we will understand how and why that is the case and apply it to our lives and to our church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I think I should start out this morning before I get started to, um, to explain to you what I mean by the title of this message, Signs of the Radiant Woman. Now, I know that many of you already know that because I talk about the radiant woman quite a bit during our study of Revelation, also during our long uh, study of church history. But for those of you who aren't fully aware of what I mean by the radiant woman, turn back to the 12th chapter of Revelation just real quickly, and I'm going to read you the first six verses of that chapter. The entire chapter is really about the radiant woman, but I'm just going to introduce her to you by reading those first six verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now that's the radiant woman. I'm not going to go into what each one of those aspects of her appearance are. But notice in verse 2, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now the radiant woman represents the messianic community that delivered the Christ child to the world. Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna. These are the Messianic community and there's a whole bunch of other ones that were at the tail end of the Old Testament and yet still are looking for the Messiah to come. Well, notice what happens next. In the third verse, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. That's the devil, of course. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. 
But And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, we have this picture of the incarnation. We have this picture of the Messianic community in the midst of one of the most evil times in the history of religion, especially because of the way that Yahweh worship had fallen. Jesus would spend his time um, fighting against them. But she's in agony as she delivers the Christ child. And, of course, Satan wants to destroy destroy the child. He wants to destroy him with temptation. He wants to destroy his kingdom and he wants to stop him from going to the cross and not completely understanding what that meant. Well, continuing on in the, four, in the fifth verse, she gave birth to a male child, that of course is Christ, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's right out of Second Samuel 7 and then right out of Daniel 7 as well. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension and coronation of Christ, who is now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Then we learn about the age in which we live. Um, and the sixth verse, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That, that time designation that refers to the gospel age, the church age, the church, the age that we are in today. Now, most of you know that that is not a universally held uh, interpretation of Revelation. You have 12 scholars and you're going to have 12 different interpretations of Revelation. But that's the one that I adhere to. Now, I put a lot of emphasis on that radiant woman. She starts out as the mother of the Christ child and she ends up as the bride of the Christ child. There's a morphing. There is a continuity here between Old and New Testament, between the Messianic community and the church. So many people think that there's a dividing line between Old and New Testament. Well, that's not the way scripture presents it. There's a continuity. And of course, a lot of things change, but there's a continuity between there. Now, why am I talking about the radiant woman even this morning? Because I see Anna as being a sign that points directly to the radiant woman. Anna is an Old Testament Messianic Jew. She is coming to the end, but she is faithfully waiting for the the redemption of Jerusalem, as we will hear in a moment. And so she is the one, along with Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and Simeon, who are representing this Old Testament radiant woman who is going to flow into the radiant woman of the New Testament, run out into the desert where she's protected by God, where the devil tries to destroy her even as he is doing today. So what I hope to do this morning is to bring out a little bit more about that. But as a sign of the radiant woman, and of course, we're the radiant woman, folks. I hope you pick that up. We are that radiant woman because we are the church. And so the the sign of the radiant woman it means that Anna has valuable Lessons, valuable information. We can look at her life, we can look at her nature, and we can see things that should be part of the church today if the church is going to be the church. And hopefully I will make that clear as we go along. Now the context that I want you to zero in on is the context of this 
visit that Jesus, along with his mother and father, of course, Jesus is an infant, you know, and, and he's there um, to uh, fulfill Old Testament righteousness. Uh, the entire story so far that Luke has been telling us, and this will be the last part of that story, but the entire story about this encounter has grounded us deeply in the Old Testament. First, we saw Jesus being um, circumcised when he really didn't need to be according to the meaning of circumcision. And then we saw Mary who needed to be purified after delivering a son 40 days later. And then we saw Jesus who was the firstborn who needed to be um, dedicated to the Lord as the firstborn was required to do. So they're, they're completing all righteousness in what they're doing. And then, of course, we met Simeon, an Old Testament saint. And the whole first day that we looked at him, we just looked at his character because he was an awesome saint. He was a very extraordinary saint, not just your everyday run-of-the-mill one. He was a righteous man because he believed God and God credits that belief as righteousness. He was a devout man worshiping God with fear and understanding that God is God and he is not. He was a a faithful man because he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, waiting faithfully for the Messiah to come. And then finally, he was spirit-filled. He was spirit-filled with that Holy Spirit. So after we saw that all those attributes of the Old Testament saint, then we looked at his song, and we made quite a big deal about that song that he sang or proclaimed to the child. Because he starts out by saying, Despota, God Almighty, Master of the Universe, you have now, because of this child, allowed your slave to depart in peace. We just sang it as well with my soul. That's exactly what Simeon's talking talking about. I can now depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. And he's the light of the Gentiles. He is the glory of his people, Israel. And he is going to be a sign that is opposed. I mean, he maps out exactly who Jesus is going to be. And then last week, we saw him turn to Mary for the most part and say, Mary, things are not always going to be that good for you. He's going to, you're going to have a sword sliced through your soul. But he said very profoundly, we spent all day on it, he said that this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many, both Jews and Gentiles. And so we, we got a heavy dose of doctrine just in what we saw with Simeon. Now, Luke is doing something that you may or may not have picked out as we've gone through it. He'll continue in, his, in the rest of his gospel. But he did it in the first chapter. He's pairing people. And if you can look at it this way, he paired Mary and Zechariah. Because Mary first gave her great song, the Magnificat, and then Zechariah gives his great song, the Benedictus. And so in the first chapter, they are paired with each other. Well, now in the second chapter, he's pairing Simeon, the Old Testament saint in the temple, with Anna, an Old Testament saint in the temple. Which means that some of the attributes that Simeon has can be assumed about Anna and Anna can be assumed about Simeon. So, I mean, yeah, about Simeon. So we, we have this, uh, this pairing off of, of these two people. Now, the last thing I wanted to notice about the, 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 the context is simply this. Outside of this event, I want you to keep in the back of your mind that extraordinary encounter between the shepherds and 
the angels. When the angels came and told the shepherds that the Christ has been born and the Shekinah glory of God uh, hung around, uh, shown all around them, and we saw that it was the heavenly host, the army of heaven that was there, perishing in the darkness with the light. And, and a lot of that is going to be reflected in what we see Anna do. So with that as a background, let's be introduced to Anna. Now, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that I've made a big deal about the fact that uh, Simeon was blessed with the recognition of the Christ child. He's in a place filled with people and all the people are rushing around and they are going about their business and they walk right by the Christ, the Savior of the world. They don't even know he's there. Kind of like people walk by the gospel today and don't even pay any attention to it. But Simeon was blessed with the recognition of who that child was. Well, he's not the only one. We're going to see that there was another and her name is Anna. So let's take a look at what we know about her. 36 verse. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Um, now, I'm going to follow the, um, the Greek ordering of this um, verse instead of the way it is in most English translations. Actually, the only one I could find that actually translates it the way it is in the original language is the, the King James Version. And this is the way it goes. There was Anna prophetess. So we're going to look at the name Anna first. Those of you who have that name as part of your name, you're either Anne or Anna or it's just in your name, maybe as a middle name, you already know that that name means grace. And, 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 and I, I don't necessarily want to try to, to create symbolism when the symbolism isn't there. Obviously, grace has an awful lot to do with the coming of this child. But there is a connection that I think is worth looking at between Anna, which is the Greek name, and Hannah, which is the Hebrew name. Now, we've already seen Hannah prominently discussed back when we were talking about Mary's Magnificat because the two songs are very, very similar. And so if we were reading through this story from start to finish as it was designed to be read, then Anna or Hannah would be very close in our memory. So there is a connection, at least a possible connection between Hannah in the Old Testament and Anna here in the and the new, because actually Hannah was desperately praying to God to provide her with a son so that she could fill the void that was created because of her barrenness. She was asking God for his grace in providing a son. Well, in a sense, Anna's doing the same thing. She is praying diligently and faithfully for God to provide her a son, just not her son, but his son, because she is waiting for the consolation of Israel. She is faithfully waiting for the Messiah, and it is all about grace, that, that son that is coming, and she is looking to fill a huge void in her life that was created by a husband that was gone years and years ago, at least 60 years ago. But there's something very interesting about the way that Luke presents Anna. Notice that he presents her in a full formal name. 
when you wanted to be very formal about someone, you would say, and this is so-and-so, son of so-and-so from the tribe of so-and-so. Now, he didn't do that with Simeon. He just said, oh, there was a guy named Simeon. But here, he takes the time to give a full designation for on his name. Now, you know, it might just be that that's what he did. Uh, You know, we don't want to read symbolism or meaning into this if it is not there. But I think it's a worthwhile exercise to ask ourselves the question, okay, so Luke, why did you include the name of Phanuel in there, her father? In fact, doesn't he kind of include it as if we're supposed to know who he is? Like, you know, he's saying, oh, yeah, you know Phanuel, right? Well, Well, this was his daughter. Well, I don't know Fanuel, and and you don't. However, if you dig a little deeper, there is a connection and a very interesting one. Because, again, Fanuel is the Greek of the more commonly known Hebrew, Peniel. And, of course, I know that that just solves it for all of you. Oh, yeah, Peniel, we, we got that. But here's where we heard about Peniel. It was way back in the Old Testament... Jacob is on his way back home, and he hears that Esau is coming, so he's scared to death. Esau is going to come up with a bunch of men, because after all, he stole his birthright. So he sends everyone away, so he's there by himself, camping by the Jabbok River, and all of a sudden, an angel comes and he wrestles the angel. Remember that? And, and when the wrestling match was over, this is what Jacob said. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which would be in Greek, Phanuel saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Well, that is exactly what's going to happen to Anna in just a few minutes. She is going to appear into the face of God in human flesh when she looks upon that Christ child, and she will be delivered, because that's what Simeon said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Well, he doesn't stop there, or Luke doesn't. He goes ahead and gives us that she was from the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the second son of Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah. Boy, you talk about a twisted uh, family tree. That is definitely one. But his descendants were known as the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher was one of those so-called ten lost tribes of Israel that were living in Samaria when the Assyrians came and just kind of transported them out and flung them around the four corners of the world. Well, Luke wants us to know that the descendants of Asher are alive and well and living in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus because she is a descendant of Asher. Now, something that won't be so important today, but might be important when we get to the third chapter and we see the genealogy that Luke puts there, the fact that we have this genealogy of Anna tells us that, well, guess what? Anna, uh, or at least the Hebrews in those days, were still keeping track of time, I mean, of the um, of the genealogies. They were still keeping track of that. And again, that may come out later. It may not. Now, let's talk about Anna's age and how that 
creates a significance in her life. Let's continue on. Now, we're going to span two verses here as we finish out um, the 36th and go into the 37th. She was advanced in years. You could really put very, very advanced in years. That's an emphatic statement there. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Interesting place to put a verse um, division. Doesn't seem to fit, does it? But anyway, we hear that she is an elderly woman. Now, if you remember when we were talking about Simeon, we said that he was an elderly man, but we, we didn't have any specific text that would point that out. Well, not so with, with Anna. Anna is represented to us as being a woman extremely advanced in years. Now, when you look at this, it seems like it's absolutely a given that she is an 84-year-old woman in the way that the ESV translates this. But I am told, and I'm not a Greek expert, but I am told that the underlying Greek language is vague to the sense that it could mean something else just as accurately as the ESV has translated. So there's two ways that we can look at Anna right now as far as what is her age? How old is she? We can see her as 84 years old, which would mean that she was a virgin for until she was, usually they got married between 14 and 17, somewhere in there. So she was a virgin up until her mid-teens, and then she was married and lived with her husband for seven years. And after that, she's 84, so that means that she's in her early 20s. So that means for about 60 years, she has been a, a widow. That's the, that's the way that the ESV translates it. However... It could just as easily be translated, and a lot of scholars believe that it should be translated, that she was a virgin until she was 14 to 17 years old, and then she was with her husband for seven years, putting her in her early 20s, and then she has spent 84 years as, as, as a widow, which would put her at 105 to 110 years old, and that would fit the emphatic nature of Luke's. She was very, very advanced in years. Because after all, 84 is not that advanced in years, is it? I mean, we celebrated Bobby's 90th birthday last week, and she's a spring chicken running circles around the rest of us. So uh, 84, at least in our time, is not considered to be that elderly, but it was in Luke's time. It was in Anna's time, and we need to put ourselves back there. Now, th this is what Moses says about that in the, in the 90th verse, or in the 90th uh, Psalm. He says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So he states, and Calvin points this out, that he states sort of on the outer edges. Now, of course, we know Moses himself was 120 when he died. But he's stating that on normal basis, the outer limits of someone who's really strong in those days is going to be 80, more like 70. And historians tell us that the average life expectancy was 50 to 60 years in that time. So 84 would have been quite old, and it would fit what Luke has to say. So that's what we're going to um, keep in mind. Now, there's one thing about, um, about uh, uh, Anna that I left out. 
And I kind of wanted it to be part of what follows. Because it's really part of what makes her such a pious woman, such an, a model for us. And that is she's referred to as a prophetess. And I think it's important that we see what that word means and how it would be applied to Anna so that we keep it in its proper perspective. In our day, prophecy or to be a prophet is almost simultaneous or synonymous with um, telling the future, being able to state what the future is or to bear fresh revelation from God. But that is not necessarily what the word prophet means. Prophet means simply to be given the word of God, to expound the word of God. And what I do on Sunday morning here as a pastor expounding the word of God would fit into that definition of what it means to be a prophet. Not the office, the ecclesiastical office of prophet, but someone who teaches, speaks, Praise is constantly reciting the word of God. And I believe that's the way that we should see it with Anna. Now, some people say that, you know, prophecy has been reborn in these days. But we've learned that that God was silent for 400 years and has just opened again by sending the angel to see Zechariah. So we know that Anna really wasn't prophesying in that sense going backwards very far. So I think that what what this is pointing out is that Anna was a student of the Word of God. I mean, she's we're going to see she's at the temple all day long, all night long. She never leaves it. And part of what she's doing while she's there is sitting at the feet of the rabbis learning God's Word, which is extremely important if we're going to understand what it means for Anna to be um, the the, um, the the uh, uh, the pious woman that we're going to we're going to see her as. Now, going back to her age, the one thing that is greatly significant about her age—it doesn't matter whether she's eighty-four or one hundred and five—but later on, we're going to see her kind of scurrying around the temple grounds. And I don't think that one hundred and five, one hundred and ten, she she would be doing that. But you know, you never know. But nonetheless, we're going to see her as eighty-four and that age. But what is really significant about her age is her faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, it means that Anna, this woman that we're kind of zeroing in on, has spent at least 60 years as a widow. Now, if you go to Scripture and you start looking at the the, the, the most helpless, frail um, a, a person that can't take care of themselves. Remember, James says that true religion is looking after widows and orphans. Widows are at the top of the list of those who need attention because they had no way of taking care of themselves. They had no jobs that they could do unless it was a market woman or begging in the street or prostitution. And obviously, Anna wasn't any of those. So uh, it, it, it puts them in a dire strait. So therefore, we need to look at Anna as being the very epitome, the very picture of earthly weakness, because that's exactly what she is. And yet, and yet, God chose her out of all the people in that temple. I mean, there's priests there. There's Sadducees, there's Pharisees, there's the high priest, there's all kinds of religious entities, there's noble men and women there, and out of all of them, he chooses this decrepit 60 years a widow must be impoverished in some way 
to reveal his son too. And that makes her, along with Simeon and Mary and Joseph, the most powerful people in that entire temple complex. And brothers and sisters, if that's all you gain out of this message, it's enough. Because that's the picture of the church. That's why I'm saying she is a sign to the radiant woman. We are strong when we are weak in the way that the world sees weakness. Well, anyway, it gives us a window onto this messianic community, the radiant woman that I'm talking about. You know, in in our New Testament arrogance, we tend to sort of denigrate Old Testament saints. and, And with good reason, especially at this particular point in time, with absolutely good reason, because in the Gospels, the religious community, as I just pointed out, they are corrupt, they are manipulators, they are hypocrites, they are apostate. I mean, they're the worst of the worst. The spiritual evil that's going on is, is just one of the most pronounced in all of history. And, and, and the crowds are not shown to be much better. They, they seem to be sort of mindless. They're lost with, like sheep without a shepherd. They are curiosity seekers. The, Jesus was only as good as his last miracle. They wanted to run around and follow him because they thought he might be a political messiah who would benefit their own position in life. I mean, and, and they were fickle, remember, on Sunday. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by Friday, they're crying out, crucify. So we're not really given a very, you know, admirable view of many of the Jews in the Gospels. But that's what Luke wants to make sure. No, don't, don't leave it there. Because there was a faithful, faithful remnant of people who were worshiping Yahweh as he should be worshiped, that were righteous, that were devout, that were spirit-filled, that were faithful, and that were um, uh, focusing on the things that should be. And they formed the backbone, if you will, to the New Testament church. This is the radiant woman. And there is a flow from them into the New Testament. And so we see this window into the nature of this messianic community. And and, and that's where Luke's going to go next. He's going to give us a little bit about her as far as this piety and, and, and how it was manifest. Look at the middle of the 37th verse. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She did not depart from the temple. Uh, now, actually, there are some people who think that she actually lived at the temple. And a lot of people actually think that. And the reason they think that is because there were apartments in the temple complex. Does anybody remember Nehemiah when Nehemiah went back to Persia and his, his antagonist, Tobias, moved into the temple, into one of those apartments? You know, and there was a confrontation between them. Well, they had apartments that were there in the temple complex that were designed for the priests who would travel to Jerusalem for their term of duty. Like Zechariah. Zechariah probably lived around Hebron or somewhere in that area. Too far to go back and forth every day on that. So they would have an apartment for him to stay in. And many people think that actually Anna lived at the temple in one of those apartments. They, they haven't really described though how an old woman from the tribe of Asher lives in an apartment designed for priests from the tribe of Levi. 
And so, so I, I don't see her actually living at the, at the um, temple. It, it's hyperbole. It, it means that she's there every day. She's there when the doors open. She's there when the doors close. Every day of the week, she is there. Every function, every feast day, every holiday, you could expect to see Anna right there in the middle of it. That is the kind of faithfulness that she has. And, and we use that, don't we, all the time? When, when, when we say that, oh, they live here. <laughs> There's some people who think they live here, right? I'm looking at Brandy. <laughs> because... I mean, you know, you're here late in the night, you know, and then you're here the early the next morning and you look at each other and say, what, did you put a cot in the back room? You know, you, they just stay here. Well, that's kind of the way that they're presenting Anna here, Luke is. She lived at the temple. But notice this. Notice at the end of the verse, he says that she was worshiping with prayer and, and fasting night and day. Okay, for all I know, except for special days like during the Feast of Booths, they opened the doors at dawn, and there was kind of a ritual about how they did it, and they locked them at dusk. So if Anna is worshiping, praying, and fasting night and day, then she's not only doing it while she's at the temple, but she's also doing it wherever she lives, and en route between the temple and where she lives, or when she goes to the market, or when she visits friends or her family, or whatever it is that she does, you defined Anna. She worshipped constantly. To Anna, worship is life. To Anna, life is worship. And, and, and that's where we kind of want to start because that's one of the most important things we're going to learn about this woman is that she was a worshiper. Now, there's four things that we have seen or we will see in here that have to do with her worship. We've already talked about the fact that she was a prophetess. And I believe that was a prophetess in the sense that everywhere you went with Anna, you sitting, if you were sitting right there, she would be praying the word of God. She would be speaking from, from her understanding of what the word of God is. She's expounding it all the time. When she wasn't praying, when she wasn't doing something else, she was sitting at the feet of the rabbi and the colonnades to understand the depths of what the scripture meant. She was a student of scripture. And that was part of her worship. The second thing, well, the, the fourth thing we're going to kind of come to later on, she glorifies God. She praises him. She gives thanksgiving to God. That's part of her worship. But here, specifically, Luke says that she worshiped with prayer and fasting. And actually, I, I have a, a nice discussion about prayer and fasting but I'm, I'm going to leave it to the after church. Uh, the technical details, a lot of people are very interested in when should I fast and when should I not fast and what does fasting mean and what is the relationship. Well, if you're interested in that, stick around to the after church and we'll talk about it, give you a chance to ask questions. But the important thing to recognize here is that the idea of fasting qualifies her prayers, qualifies her worship. In other words, fasting in and of itself is not an act of worship. Um, praying is. And you really can't separate fasting from prayer because fasting is designed to intensify, to enhance, to enrich your prayer life, to take away something from this world, to give you uh, an, an empty stomach so that you will focus on the Lord even all that more. Now, here's what the significance is, brothers and sisters. This is the core. Please, Get this, 
Because if she does represent the church, this is something that we need to know. For 60 years, this woman has been developing a deeper relationship with God through scripture study, through prayer, through fasting to enhance and strengthen and enrich that prayer and by giving glory to God, being in the temple and and, and, and worshiping every single day. For 60 years, she's been developing that relationship. Anna has a personal relationship with her father and husband, who is God. And we're going to see as soon as she sees the Christ child, the one she's going to turn to is the one she has the close relationship with, which is God. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to talk about this later. But if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we are a collection of people, each one of whom has a personal relationship with Jesus. And the stronger our relationship with Jesus, the stronger we will be. As a church, no matter how many pews are empty, no matter how many people are here, strength is not found in numbers. Strength is found in personal relationships with Jesus Christ. And when we gather together as a group of people, the smaller we are, the better if we are that much uh, closer to the Lord. Well, that typifies who Anna is. She is a worshiper and she has a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, I'm going to come back to that uh, a little bit later, but let's go ahead and finish our text in the 38th verse. We come to Anna's song. Let me go ahead and read it and we'll talk about it. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, We've talked in this entire nativity narrative, which we are coming to the end of it. Next time we see Jesus, he's going to be 12. Um, and, and Luke is going to turn his focus entirely to Jesus from here on out. So this is the end of this Old Testament grounding that, that he has done. And through this Old Testament grounding, I have said over and over again that Luke has given us Five beautiful songs or hymns or psalms, proclamations that um, are given by different people. First it was Elizabeth, then it was Mary with the Magnificat, then it was uh, Zechariah with the Benedictus, then it was the angels from heaven singing glory to God in the highest, then it was Simeon who we just studied. But Anna never gets mentioned. And the reason she doesn't get mentioned is because Luke doesn't give us the words of the song, but she, she's going to react. Nonetheless, this, <laughs> this woman is going to give us a song nonetheless. So let's, let's take a look at it a little bit closer. And coming up at that very hour, I want you to visualize this. I'm going to try to do my best to create a, a visual picture here. Um, that, uh, that, that is a little bit more, uh, it's kind of an idiomatic expression, you know. It doesn't mean at this hour. What it means is that exact moment. Okay, it, it is a period of something that, it is a meaning of something that happens simultaneously with something else. And so what Luke is saying is simultaneous with what Simeon is saying. When Simeon is talking to the Christ child and singing his song, at that exact moment, Anna comes up and addresses that little group. It, it, it is a... Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, a, a sign of almost simultaneous action. 
And then notice what Anna does next. Don't miss this. What does she do? Does she adore the Christ child? Does she pick him up in her arms? Does she turn to Simeon and say, wonderful song there, Simeon? Does she turn to Joseph and Mary and say, congratulations for the new baby boy? What did Anna do? Immediately she went to her strongest relationship. She praised God. She gave thanks to him. And she glorified the God of heaven. That is something we don't want to miss because that is exactly what she does. She immediately, her natural reaction was to praise God and to begin to tell other people about it. Very similar to the shepherds. I told you at the beginning we we're going to draw a little bit of a, an idea between the shepherds. Remember what the shepherds did? Or what Luke actually told us the shepherds did? That they went to Bethlehem, they found the Christ child, and then they told Joseph and Mary what the angels had said to them. They affirmed the, the, the divinity of the Christ child. Well, Anna's doing the same thing. Praise God. Thank you. She turns immediately to God and begins to give him the praise. Just one more wonderful lesson for the church of Jesus Christ to remember that we worship an all-powerful God who loves to hear our thanksgiving. <laughs> remember those blind men that Jesus healed and everybody ran away except one of them came back and Jesus said, are you the only one who came back to actually thank me for what I did? Well, well this, is, this is what Anna did. And by the way, it is also what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus... And actually, I read you in the narrow gate earlier some of these verses from the high priestly prayer. Jesus was always praising God. <laughs> he was always turning to God in praise. As, um, as we read, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. He says, the Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Over and over again, Jesus brought glory to God. Father, thank you that you have shown these things to the, the weak and the small and you have hidden them from the wise. He was always praising and thanking his Father. So Anna shows us the way here in the way that she responds to the, the, uh, the, the, the news. Now, here's what I want to do, and I have to be very careful here, so please pay attention. Uh, Luke hasn't given us many details, all right? He didn't tell us what Anna did. He didn't tell us that, you know, in the interaction with this little group that she comes up to. And so, in my mind, what that does to a graphics-oriented person like myself, I like to visualize things. And so what that does is, it, to me, it opens the door and says, okay, I'm going to give you some boundaries, and you don't step out of those boundaries. I don't want you making stuff up. But it's okay for you to try to visualize it the way that you would see it. And you have to be careful because your imagination can run away from you. Don't add anything to the story. Don't create something and then believe it. But it is all right, I think, if you try to visualize something that you're not given any details. Now, some people think you're not given details so you won't visualize it. I think you're not given any details so that you will, as long as you stay within it. So here's the way I see it. I see Anna being in the, the court of women. The reason, because there's women there, not the court of the Jews, which was men only. 
And because that was a very busy spot, it was also the treasury. So people were always coming and going from them. There would have been a whirlwind of people all around. And she is there at the temple and she's going to be at the same place that they would come to probably buy their son back. Right? That was the whole process of of dedicating him to the Lord. That was the treasury. So the way I see it is Anna is, is standing somewhere in that court of women. And I believe she probably knew Simeon. Because after all, Simeon's there every day. She's going to go around a little while and start telling everyone who's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem about the Christ child. So I, I would imagine they all knew each other. So here she is in this busy place. She looks across and she sees Simeon with this young couple next to her. And him holding this child in his arms. And she can tell from his body language that that child is something special. Simeon is trembling as he looks at this child in his arms. And so she comes across the courtyard and she shows up exactly when Simeon starts his song. When he says, Despota, God, Lord and Master, now... Your servant, your slave can depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. A light to Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. And then as he turned to Mary and among other things says, this child is the appointed one for the fall and the rise of many And he will be a sign opposed. And at that moment, the lights go on and Anna recognizes that what they are looking at is the Christ child. What they are looking at is the the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. And immediately what she does is she turns to her father and her husband, who she has spent the last 60 years in an intimate, personal relationship with, and she praises him and gives him the glory. Now, people do that in different ways, don't they? I tend to be... Kind of stoic on the outside when I'm turning somersaults on the inside. Every now and then I can't hold it inside, you know, and I've got to praise God by lifting my hands. But other people aren't that way. Come with us to Haiti sometime. You're going to see people who wear their worship on the outside rather than the inside. And the way I see Anna is not like that. I see Anna as, I'm sorry, I know this is conjecture. It is absolutely the way I see it in my head. I see Anna dance a jig. I do. I, I see this elderly woman just can't keep her, st- her feet still as she begins to jump literally for joy because she has seen the, the redemption of, of Jerusalem. Finally, she could easily say the same thing that, that Simeon said, my eyes have seen your salvation And now your servant can depart in peace. The only thing that's different is that she's not going to depart in peace. And she's going to show us yet another aspect of why she is such a good model of the radiant woman. At the end of that, she says, And to speak of him, to speak of the Messiah, to all who were waiting 
for the redemption of Israel. Once again, I think she knew who these people were. She she knew who the ones who were really faithfully waiting for the Messiah, the Messianic community. And immediately, this woman, this little woman, as I say, her, goes running around the vast court of Gentiles into the colonnades, wherever the people that she knew were, and telling them, about the Messiah she had seen. Now, once again, this is exactly what we saw the shepherds do. Twice in this nativity story, you've seen the same reaction to seeing the Christ child. Immediately, they ran to Bethlehem. They told Mary and Joseph everything that had happened to them. And then they began to fan out and tell anyone who would listen. Now, honest audience is a little more targeted, obviously. She is targeting those who are faithfully waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. By the way, that's just another phrase. You could say the, the, the consolation of Israel. Jerusalem is the crown of, of Israel. As goes Jerusalem, so goes Israel. The consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, same thing. Talking about the Savior, talking about Jesus. And the Messianic community knew who their Redeemer was and they were waiting for him. Because they knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophets like Isaiah who said, And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from my from transgression, declares the Lord. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Out of the anguish of his soul, he says in the 53rd chapter, And this, of course, should tell them what kind of a redeemer he is. Out of the anguish of his soul shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the one they were waiting for. And that's the one they now have realized is there. One last thing I want to say about Anna before I step back and make some comments on this. Anna didn't do this out of obligation, folks. She, she didn't go and tell everyone in, in, in the temple complex that she could find because she was given some kind of great commission. She did it because she couldn't hold it inside. She couldn't wait to tell people what she had seen. She couldn't wait to tell people that the Messiah has come. And brothers and sisters, that should be the natural reaction for everyone in the radiant woman. Now, once again, as I told you in the beginning, the radiant woman to me represents the church of today just like it represented Anna. And she is, she is expressing these attributes that are so valuable and such great lessons we can learn from her about what the church should be. And I'm speaking of the church now. We are an individual group of people, and together we are the church. There's four things that we learn from Anna that I think are extremely important. That if we would simply incorporate these into the church today, the church would be more powerful than it is at the current time. First of all, as I said earlier, I want you to remember that Anna was the very epitome of earthly weakness. You couldn't get any weaker than a 60-year widow. They had no way of sustaining themselves. They lived impoverished. How on earth did she make it through 60 years? 
And yet, because of her personal relationship with God, she was the spiritual powerhouse that God chose to be in his book to represent the radiant woman or the messianic community that delivers the Christ and morphs into the New Testament church. And the reason that she was chosen is because of that 60-year time of gaining that personal relationship with Christ. That is of great significance, and we just simply don't want to miss that. The second thing that I want to bring out is that she was engaged in continual worship. Uh, Before I leave that previous thought, let me just say this. Let me put it in more of a modern context. Brothers and sisters, I look around me at the church and I see all kinds of efforts to grow the presence of Christ in this world. And, And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But you know something? The church is not about numbers. Never has been, never will be. The church is not about power. Church is not about politics. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be involved with politics. I'm not saying it's a bad thing for you to march on Washington for whatever cause that you have. And certainly, if the political government begins to come after the moral dictates and statutes of Scripture, we must stand against it. But other than that, we are not a political organization. We never have been. Every time the church has tried to become political and force. Religion on a people group, it has been disastrous because the weeds immediately sprout up amongst the wheat. We are a weak bunch of people, folks. We are like Anna. We should relish that. We should realize that in our weakness, we are strong. And that in when we are weak in the world's eyes, we are strong in Christ. That our true power is not in numbers. It is not in some political party. It is not in who is in the White House or who is in Congress. Our power is in Christ. And the gospel that we have been given to share with the world. And that's what the church needs to focus on. And be weak. As far as the rest of the world is considered. Secondly, Anna showed us that there is an activity that the church should be involved with. And that activity is worship. We are called to be worshipers. Again, what did she do? Did she form a committee to improve conditions within the temple? Did she go after the corruption? Did she form a group of zealots to fight the Romans? Did she take any other method of spending her time other than praising, worshiping, praying, fasting, studying God's word, living at the temple? Anna shows us that we are Worshippers to, to Anna and Simeon both. Worship was life. And, and life was worship. It never stopped. No matter where they were, what they were doing, what they were thinking, they were worshiping God in their life, in their godly living, reflected that worship. There are people who would say to me at this point, and I know that people who would say this because I used to say this. What, you want me to be a fanatic? <laughs> Where's balance in life? I mean, we're supposed to be balanced. I mean, come on, let's, let's don't be all one-sided. I mean, religion is good, right? But let's not be, let's not go overboard on it. We need to balance it out with the rest of the things in our lives. We have to make livings. We have to have families. We have to do these kinds of things and those kinds of things. And my response now is, do I really need to answer that question? 
Do I really need to answer a question that is so completely answered in Scripture? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things are going to come to you. You are going to spend an eternity, brothers and sisters, worshiping God. Nothing that you do on this earth, nothing that you acquire, nothing that you build is going to make any difference in your eternity. Your eternity is going to be filled with worshiping God. Jesus says that we worship him in spirit and truth. And there is going to come a day that God is looking for worshipers and he's going to fill his heaven with those worshipers. There is no closer place that you can be to heaven while you're on this earth than to be worshiping God. That's the point that she is making. Third point is that she has spent the rest, most of her life, 60 years, developing a personal relationship with Yahweh. A personal relationship with God. Now, brothers and sisters, as I've said, this is the core. This is the most important point that I'm going to make. And if it's all you hear today, then that's okay. Because this is the difference between a church that is a group of people in a social club and a church that is a true church of Jesus Christ. Because a true church of Jesus Christ is a collection of people, each one of whom has a personal relationship with Jesus. And the deeper your relationship, the stronger your relationship, each and every one of you, the stronger that you have a relationship with him, the stronger we will be as a church. There's no program. There's no group effort. There is no sort of plans that we can do that are going to make us a strong and vibrant church that is any more powerful than you personally developing a strong and vibrant and dynamic relationship with Jesus. Because you see, people who have relationships with Jesus, know each other. Ah, there's a lot of problems in the world, aren't there? I mean, big problems. There's classes, there's financial issues, there's racial issues, there's cultural issues. And, and, and people have all kinds of ideas about what the solution is. Well, let me tell you what the solution is here at New Hope Community Church. If you want to save the world, if you want to change the world, strengthen your relationship with Christ. Because the more you strengthen your relationship with Christ, the more powerful you become in him, which is the only kind of power that we actually need. And the more powerful this group, this church becomes. And then all of the problems that the world has just simply fall away. We don't have those problems in the church because we are bound together with something that they don't have and cannot understand. Race doesn't matter. The color of your skin doesn't matter. The language you speak, the culture you're from, the background you have, none of that matters because I look at you and I see Christ in you and you look at me and you see Christ in me. The closest relationship that I I have had with another human being besides my wife and my family is with a man that I still haven't had the opportunity to mourn. Many of you know him, Pastor said Juan Lucian. We had a bond. We had something going back 20 years. Now, he's a Haitian man, and I'm an American. He speaks Creole, and I speak English. We had the worst time trying to communicate with each other. One of his sons said he's never seen two better friends that couldn't talk to each other. But we didn't need to. 
Because I knew his heart and he knew my heart. I loved him and he loved me. We had the closest bond because he loved Christ and I love Christ. And it is that bond that drew us together. Now, if we're going to be a church of Jesus Christ, if we're going to be the radiant woman, it is essential that you love Christ too. And that you build that relationship as strong as you possibly can, like Anna did. Studying the words, praying, fasting, taking the sacraments, serving, fellowshipping, worshiping. All of those means of grace. That's how we become the church of Philadelphia. A little church that God uses to do great things. That's the lesson we learn from Anna. And then finally, and this is an easy one. She got out there and told everybody about the the good news. Just out of the joy of her heart. She couldn't hold it inside. She had to get out there and tell people. Twice here in this little nativity story, we've seen the same reaction. Both from shepherds, bottom of the social strata, and Anna, a widow of 60 years. They got out and and they told others, everyone they could find about Jesus. Now, we're a little bit different than Anna. We don't have a targeted audience, but then again, we do. It's just that we don't know who that audience is. God has targeted them. God is going to pull them out of darkness into his marvelous light. We don't know who they are and they don't know who they are. And so, therefore, we share the gospel without question with everyone. Now, if Anna can do it, why, why can't you? Why are we so afraid? Why are we so afraid to share the gospel because people look at us and say, oh, you're silly, or oh, you're a fundamentalist, or oh, keep that to yourself. Yet if one person comes to know the Lord through what you have done, then you have been blessed beyond measure. So here's what we have learned. Four things. First of all, when we are weak, we are strong. Secondly, that the greatest activity that you and I can be involved with as the church, if we want to be the church, is to worship God. Thirdly, it doesn't matter how many people are in here, how many people we have. What matters is our own personal relationships with Jesus. The stronger those relationships, the stronger and more God is going to use this church. And fourthly, is to get out and tell the world about it. You know, that passage I read you earlier, the radiant woman was pretty helpless both in Revelation and in Luke. And the, 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 the devil chased her into the desert and tried to drown her with a river of lies. But she went to a place that God had prepared for her and he protected her. As Jesus says, this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And so you know what that does, brothers and sisters? It ought to free us up to be the church to stop being whatever we the world says we ought to be, whatever organization or social club that people fill their time with, it, fill, it frees us up to be the church, to be the group that God made us to be, each one of us with a personal relationship. So let the church be the church. Let the church be the radiant woman, just like Anna. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the, the guidance you give us in Scripture. We thank you for this beautiful um, nativity story of Luke and, and the great lessons that it teaches us. Help, help us to learn them, not just to let them pass through one ear and go out the other, but that we will not only learn them, we will implement them, especially 
the central thought of the morning is that through prayer, fasting, scripture, praise, worship, the means of grace, that we strengthen our relationship with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.